one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And part of what has made America the greatest nation on God's green earth is what people call the American dream. A distinguished scholar at AEI, American Enterprise Institute, and a former aide to uh, Senator Mike Lee and with the Joint Economic Committee of Congress, it's a guy named Scott Winship who says, yeah, the American dream still exists, still thrives. The dual promise of the American dream and why it's worth defending is a new paper that he has just uh, published. It's appeared in National Review and uh, at the AEI, at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Winship, a great honor to speak to you and congratulations on your contribution. Hello, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, first of all, the dual promise. Uh, what, what most people think about uh, when they think about the American dream has to do with the notion that uh, the nation is constantly moving forward, moving up, and that the, the ability to uh, dream that your children will do even better than you have is just inherent to our identity. And the second half of the American dream in the dual promise? Yeah, so I look at it two ways. As you said, you know, I think everybody wants to end up better off uh, than their parents. Um, we tend to focus too much, I think, on um, being better off in economic terms um, rather than social terms. And I think, you know, those are two very different things. Um, but then the second piece of it is, you know, can, can you achieve your aspirations? Can you transcend your origins? Um, if the son of a of a security guard, um, you know, aspired to be a lawyer, um, but ended up kind of having his dreams thwarted and ends up being a security guard too, better paid. Um, that's, you know, that's not nothing. Um, but it's, it's, it's not the only thing either, right? So, so we do care about people being able to, to break through and rise from the bottom, uh, out of the bottom. Um, we care if they start the middle, if they don't fall to the bottom. Um, and so that's, that's the second piece of it. And uh, in terms of America and the ability to rise, one of the things you talk about is there are a series of mistakes and sometimes open distortions uh, that are perpetrated by both the left and the right concerning uh, the ability of Americans to uh, transcend their backgrounds and the ability to, in fact, uh, advance beyond what your parents achieved what do people get wrong yeah so i think the big part of the story that people get wrong is this question of in in economic terms are we better off uh than our than our parents were um you know if you look at anything from hourly wages to family or household incomes those are higher than they've ever been if you look at poverty, whether that's adult poverty or child poverty, that's actually lower than, than it's ever been. Um, the rate at which we our economic position has improved has slowed. Um, there was a time, you know, immediately after World War II where there was just fantastic economic growth, the likes of which we may never see again. Um, but it's still the case that we continue to be better off, just not just at a slower slower rate. I think um, where where we tend to underfocus, and this is changing slowly, 
uh, but is in the area of, of social uh, decline. Um, you know, if you, I, I think the most obvious uh, thing that people look at out there is just the number of kids who grow up with, with both their parents, um, you know, which has been declining for, for decades. Um, but, but it's actually true across a wide range of indicators of, of the health of our social lives, you know, the things that we do together, um, the, the organizations and institutions that we're a part of, things like religious attendance and affiliation, um, even the amount of time we spend with our neighbors and our coworkers, you know, those are all steadily down over the course of, say, 50 years or so. Um, so that, that, that's a real blind spot. And when we do focus on it, we tend to blame the, the, the sort of failing economy for it, and, that, and that's, that's just a misattribution as well. Um, a lot of these problems are because we're wealthy enough that we actually don't need each each other as much as we used to in the past, um, and it's created these other problems that we have to be aware of. So when you talk about these other problems that we have to be aware of, if uh, you're not saying that they are dependent upon the economy, what uh, what does uh, – and, and the fact that people – you're suggesting that in a sense we're trapped in our own success because people don't need each other as much. Uh, the bonds that connect people in communally are, are less durable and uh, applicable. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, for instance, there was a time where, um, you know, single parenthood was just not a viable option. And, and I don't mean to speak lightly of single parenthood. I've been a single parent myself. Um, but but single parenthood, the fact that 40% of kids um, are born to single parents these days, that's only possible uh, when when society is rich enough to have a safety net um, that will support uh, single parent families. It's, it's only possible when um, a lot of women, middle class women, uh, upper middle class women can afford uh, to, to raise kids alone. Um, you know, the the fact that women have so many opportunities today that they didn't uh, have in the past is a great thing, but it has produced um, it, or it's contributed to some of to some of these uh, things like uh, uh, like greater single parenthood, and 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 that may be all uh, well and fine for for folks in the middle class or the upper middle class, but it's really been a disaster, I think, for poor kids. Um, who, you know, just don't have two sets of eyes on them. They don't have the incomes of two parents. Um, they, you know, don't necessarily have role models if they're boys, for instance. The girls need, need male role models as well. So it's created a whole set of problems that has translated into lower upper upward mobility, that, that second piece that I, that I started with, being able to transcend your origins. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's these social problems um, that that don't necessarily have causes that are that are about the economy doing worse that, that aren't about trade for instance or um, you know whatever whatever other sort of pet economic problems people have um, they're they're more facts of uh, of a relatively rich society uh, that that uh, you know has failed to solve the problem of of poor kids having um, too low a chance uh, of, of making it out of poverty themselves as adults. So, what uh, if the results uh, or the the essential element in these social factors that you talk about, which is the forty percent of kids who were born outside of marriage, uh, the uh, obvious fact that most Americans are very aware that e even though 
uh, as I'm sure you know, the 50% divorce rate is exaggerated and probably not an accurate uh, statistical artifact. The, uh, the fact that we have divorce surrounding us uh, and that people are disconnected, what, what kinds of changes would be mm. necessary either politically or economically or socially or religiously to strengthen that aspect of the American dream, the aspect that uh, indicates that you are free to move up the ladder as much as your hard work and ability will take you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and a lot of this, I think, you know, it does have to sort of be work done um, in civil society, you know, that's not necessarily the federal government um, that's, that's sort of pushing policy levers. But that said, I do think there are things that government and even the federal government could do. Uh, we have uh, a lot of programs um, that include marriage disincentives um, in our safety net. We could reform those to encourage marriage. Um, we, 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 could, we could do more. Let, let us come back to that because that is a crucial question. I'm, I'm talking about the American dream and its dual promise. Uh, with Scott Winship of American Enterprise Institute. We'll be right back with Dr. Winship. The Michael Medved Show. By Dr. Scott Winship, who is a senior fellow and director of poverty studies at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, AEI, where he researches social mobility and the causes and effects of poverty. His uh, new piece, The Dual Promise of the American Dream and Why It's Worth Defending, is linked at our website at michaelmedved.com. When you talk about the, the aspect, and, and again, that one of the problems we have is that most people believe that uh, things have gotten worse in terms of poverty in the United States, that there are more and more people in the middle class who have fallen into poverty and people see the the evidence of, of homeless encampments in every major city. Uh, when, when that is the case, and you're talking about the idea that the American dream really is still alive, for people to move forward and to and engage in the social mobility that's always been the pride of our country. Um, very specifically, uh, what what is uh, the most important priority in terms of sustaining that mobility as an option for Americans? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, for me, if we want uh, to help more poor kids rise out of the bottom, um, which I think we all we all should, um, we've got to grapple with the fact that kids from different backgrounds start kindergarten with very unequal uh, school readiness. Um, and so, you know, if, if problems are showing up that early, then it, it strikes me that we need to really think hard about early childhood and ways to help parents who want the best for their kids um, but maybe don't have the skills to, to provide it. Um, other cases, uh, you know, parents are, are just not creating um, nurturing communities for their kids. But I think most parents want what's best for their kids. So I've, I've proposed in the past, for instance, um, you know, creating an office of opportunity in the White House that 
would would fund a bunch of local experiments and you know would 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 do so knowing that a lot of what government tries to do doesn't end up working um, but trying to find you know the one in 20 uh, uh, ideas approaches that actually uh, does does uh, lead to success and is something that can be replicated in other places um, I think we need to reform our safety net programs so that they get rid of the disincentives to things like saving and investing in your own skills and uh, that that disincentivize marriage um, that disincentivize work there's a lot that could be done there uh, for sure as well um, we talked before the break about um, uh, trying to increase marriage I think there's a number of ways policies can do that so it's really got to be we've got to dedicate ourselves to the goal wholeheartedly I think and then just throw a bunch of different policy ideas at it Okay, well, one of the things that uh, you're, you probably have taken a look at this new uh, Pew uh, Research Center study of parenthood, uh, when people are asked about their aspirations for their children. And this was a stunner to me. Uh, it shows that um, about 4 in 10 say it is either extremely or very important to them that their children earn a college degree. Uh, hmm. I would have thought it would be higher than 4 in 10, and it is for different ethnic groups. 70% of Asian parents say it's extremely or very important to them. 57% of Hispanic parents, 51% of black parents. But the hmm. outlier here is the white parents. Only 29% of white parents uh, say it's extremely or very important that, that their kids should earn a college degree. Uh, do you do you have some explanation or interpretation of what that signifies and why that that difference would be so stark? I don't. It was a surprising result to me as well. It's the kind of thing you know, you'd, you'd sort of want to see other uh, other surveys um, find the same thing. You know, before before I think weighing too much on on just the one survey. But, you know, it, it does go to show, I think sometimes we tend to look at issues of poverty and opportunity and upward mobility um, through through a racial lens sometimes. And, you know, there there is a lot of, uh, of sort of white poverty, white disadvantage that's out there. You think of Appalachia, you think of the opioid crisis, you know, which has really uh, hurt a lot of um, white rural families in particular. Uh, so, so it really is an issue that I think you know, crosses um, racial categories um, and, and you know, where we could do a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds a lot of good if we, uh, if we just choose to elevate uh, increasing upward mobility um, through, you know, reviving social life in a healthy way. Um, that, that should be a goal that should be bipartisan. Um, we can sort of argue about left and right solutions um, after that, but, but if, we, if we made it uh, a primary goal, um, I think we could make a lot of progress. Now, when you talk about institutions and local institutions, uh, this is another thing that has been very striking in a whole series of studies recently, that uh, at least according to the Gallup organization, uh, for the first time ever, uh, under 50% of adults today are affiliated with a church, synagogue, or mosque. Uh, hmm. Is that part of the uh, fraying and is there anything that government 
could do without violating the establishment of religion clauses of the First Amendment? Yeah, those are really important questions. I, you know, so whether it's part of, of the fraying of the social fabric, I think absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's good research out there. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, religious people um, tend to be very involved uh, in terms of giving their time and their money to their own religious community and congregation. But it also turns out that, uh, that, that the biggest uh, contributors to secular volunteerism um, are religious people. Um, and so, you know, when, when uh, religiosity declines, it has a much bigger impact just on sort of what's happening in churches or congregations. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a societal impact. What can government do? You know, it, it is very tricky there, but I think a very obvious thing to do would be to try to make it easier for federal funds and federal programs to be administered through religious organizations. That was something that was experimented with a bit um, in George W. Bush's uh, presidency, uh, kind of before 9/11 happened. Uh, I think it's something we should take another look at uh, because it's you know any any program. Uh, it's going to be more effective if it's run by folks who are at the local level who know their congregants, uh, and 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 we ought to just make it easier for those folks to be at the steering wheel. So, and not everything relies on the federal government. What a concept, Scott Winship. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, his piece about the dual nature of the American dream and why it's essential to defend it. Uh, that's posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. When we come back, uh, Boris Johnson is in the United States, and uh, he had something important to say to uh, his fellow Americans. Why do I say fellow Americans? He's actually born in New York. I just wanted to call and throw my two cents in. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, won't even cost you two cents. Uh, go to michaelmedved.com and uh, look for the banner for the summit. Uh, that is the uh, summit uh, technology summit. It's a global investor summit uh, for our crowd. Uh, this is a, an annual event. Uh, there are already 7,000 registered participants in person. But you can also participate by getting information and hooking up online. Uh, just uh, look at the Summit Week events that are occurring February 12th to the 17th. Uh, you can register now and uh, check it out at uh, michaelmedved.com. Look for the banner for our crowd for the Global Technology Investor Summit. It's a great opportunity. Uh, this email came in from John in SeaTac. He was wanted to comment on what we were talking about before with columnist E.J. Dion about universal voting, uh, basically following the example of Australia. And there are actually 24 countries around the world where voting is mandatory, where they basically uh, and, and what they do in Australia is they assess it's now $20 that uh, if you want to pay $20, you uh, have no requirement to vote. And and by the way, it's also very easy to get out of voting without paying that kind of bill because 
one of the things they do is they say that if you have a, a, an excuse for why you didn't submit your ballot, you were sick that day or you were out of the country uh, or you had an emergency at work, that's always permissible. <laughs> so you get out of paying the $20 fee. But uh, John in SeaTac, Washington, writes, universal voting seems to put the emphasis on the wrong thing. I'm not encouraged by getting the unmotivated, ignorant, and naive voters more involved. Seems that they would be easily manipulated. Instead, let's increase participation by working toward a more knowledgeable electorate who would be motivated because they actually care and have an understanding of what may actually work and care about the consequences of poor lawmaking. People who might actually remember the promises and outcomes of ill-conceived ideas. Democracy is not stronger just because we have a whole bunch of people with the ability to check a box. I, I think that's entirely true. Uh, however, there, there's another problem that we didn't speak about at all, and I think it's, it's really part of the American perspective, is right now we have too many elections. I mean, it's famously, it's been the case in, in Israel because they have a parliamentary system. And in Israel, they've had five national elections to choose a whole new government, a whole new... And because it's a parliamentary election, you're voting the same time for your representation in the Knesset, in their Congress, as you are voting for the prime minister. You can't split your ticket. You're voting for one party or another. And uh, they get very big participation but uh, there, it is a, a bad and unhealthy thing to have elections all the time and we have that in the United States because we have our elections separately for local elections for statewide elections and for federal elections and particularly the turnout for local elections almost everywhere is really sad and it is it is pathetic because there are so many people who feel they can't inform themselves as to who the candidates are for the uh, county board of assessment or for the water district or for the boards of education in various places. It's just too much. And I think that part of the argument in behalf of uh, the universal voting is that if people believe that it's an obligation, that it's a requirement, that you have to fill it out like you need to get a driver's license, at least you'll be a little bit more motivated to find out what's going on with uh, that plethora of elections we have. It's also one of those things where when they created a situation, in particularly in West Coast states during the progressive era, where they had... Uh, uh, basically uh, elections on propositions that would be put up to the public and you would vote on different elements. The ballots are so long, I think that discourages people. And frankly, rather than uh, advancing the cause of a democratic republic, I think part of the idea that people, uh, voters, are going to decide all of these different and sometimes very complicated and confusing ballot propositions and it's uh, not not something that makes people 
more eager, excited to participate in the democratic process for the most part. But that, that question about getting more educated electorate, uh, it, look, it's a, it's a very important question. And it goes to the point that um, they're, they're talking now about making the citizenship test easier. But even with the citizenship test being made easier and with uh, less demanding questions, uh, the people who become naturalized citizens who take that test, uh, clearly the fact that they take it uh, <laughs> uh, prepares them better with more knowledge of our history and our system of government and the way American civics works than for many native-born Americans. Uh, speaking of native-born Americans, I mentioned that Boris Johnson, who's in the United States, he spoke with uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell about Ukraine. And then he went on Fox News, and the former prime minister spoke, uh, I think, persuasively, as he usually does, about how important it is to continue support for Ukraine from America, from the United Kingdom, from Germany, and from the West or the rest of the West. Uh, this is Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, clip nine. This is the moment to double down on our support, give them what they need, whether it's the, the tanks or the, the long range artillery fires. They need to kick Putin out of the whole of the territory. And I know how. Uh, people in America have done an incredible job. The faster Putin gets out of Ukraine, uh, the, the quicker we return to stability and the more powerful the message we send to people like China uh, that the, the, the West, that America, the UK, the West will not tolerate aggressive attempts to change borders by force. So, you know, you wrote in an op-ed about uh, Putin paved the way for Ukrainian entrance into NATO. And you write, instead of properly punishing him, Putin, we responded with a policy of craven appeasement. Ukrainians should be given everything they need to finish this war as quickly as possible. You think uh, there is any lack of will? Do you sense that? You were just up on Capitol Hill. Yes. Yeah, so so I just, I just talked to Lindsey Graham. I talked to Mitch. Uh, McConnell, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, uh, 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 loads of others. You know, I find uh, there's a massive amount of bipartisan support. And look, I want to pay tribute to the Biden administration. Uh, what they did, uh, what Joe did, what Joe Biden did, what all his people did in, in very difficult circumstances was they, they stepped up to the plate and they gave Ukraine uh, what it needed. What I think we all need to do now is, is go further. And save time, uh, save money, save lives, and give the Ukrainians uh, what, they, what they need. That's uh, Boris Johnson, former British Prime Minister. Uh, in, in another foreign policy issue was uh, brought to the front by Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who uh, was visiting Israel, and he, he actually took uh, what I, I was surprised to hear him take, which was to talk a little bit about the shortcomings, to put it mildly, of the Palestinian Authority uh, while he was speaking with Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, who's the president of the Palestinian Authority.
Michael Medved Show. Breaking news uh, today as scheduled. Uh, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, third in line to the presidency, uh, met with uh, President Biden. Uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, isn't it? Got to get used to saying it. I mean, it's been so many years, it seems, that we've had Speaker Nancy Pelosi. No, this is Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He met with Joe Biden, and uh, he said, I think our first meeting was a good meeting. Now, apparently, they used to have breakfast all the time when when McCarthy was in the House and Biden uh, was in the Senate. So it's not their first meeting. They know each other. But he told reporters at the White House after the meeting concluded, they're talking, of course, about raising the debt ceiling and what is necessary to protect the economy from some truly terrible developments. And uh, he said, we promised we would continue the conversation. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. We want to make sure to do this in a responsible, reasonable way, Speaker McCarthy said acknowledging that both he and Biden had very different perspectives on the issue. We will be talking again. McCarthy declined to elaborate on his terms for an agreement with the reporters who asked for him to to do what McCarthy has been, I think, smartly unwilling to do, which is to identify specific areas where he wants to see cuts in federal spending. I'm not going to negotiate this in the press, he said. Uh, the, the one thing, and, and this is a point that um, Mark Thiessen makes in his column and th that is, is truly obvious. Uh, they, they should not be making cuts or even threatening cuts in Social Security and Medicare in this context. I mean, if you watch what's going on in France right now, <laughs> and and their their change is necessary. They had retirement age. You got your government pension at age sixty two, and given the fact that people, yes, in France as well as the United States, are now living uh, generally into their eighties, the uh, the idea of paying for the same retirement date of age sixty two. Uh, the the obvious way that, uh, and I believe that this is going to happen, is they are going to, not for people who are immediately facing retirement, because if you've been working all your life planning to retire here in the United States at age 65 or 67 to get higher benefits, it's wrong to change the rules on you when you've been paying in that whole time. But generally, the, the idea that, uh, as the French seem to feel with their mass demonstrations, the changing the retirement age from 62 to 64 is somehow a crime and it's a depredation and you can't have that go forward. Other than changing retirement ages and dates and restructuring the Social Security system, the there's not going to be any changes in Medicare or Social Security that are going to come out of these negotiations with President Biden and Kevin McCarthy. What may be necessary is be to postpone or cut back some of the uh, tremendous increases in spending that were authorized in the first part of the Biden administration. 
And uh, yes, that's going to be politically difficult for President Biden to acknowledge. But uh, that that kind of change, one can only hope, will bring more balance to the whole process. Speaking of bringing balance, uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was in the Middle East, and he not only met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and apparently their meeting was cordial and constructive, but uh, he also met with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president who, as we always point out, is getting into his uh, 14th year of the four-year term <laughs> that he was elected to fulfill. In any event, uh, this was Secretary Blinken speaking about uh, the way his trip to Israel and the Middle East seemed to go. We look to both sides to unequivocally condemn uh, any acts of violence, regardless of the victim uh, or the perpetrator. Uh, we talked about the importance of the Palestinian Authority itself continuing to approve its governance uh, and accountability, uh, strengthening the institutions of the uh, of the PA. Uh, that too will improve the that too lives of the Palestinian people and also lay the groundwork for a democratic Palestinian state. This is a, a challenging time. Uh, I um, appreciate the president's uh, determination to try to work through it in a responsible way that uh, looks out for the, the lives of, uh, of everyone, uh, Palestinians uh, and Israelis alike. That's what's at stake in this moment. And uh, it's important that we all uh, work together, but particularly Palestinians and Israelis work together, as I said in the first instance, to de-escalate, to reduce the tensions, and then to build from there. Okay, uh, uh, the one thing that he, of course, uh, s sort of nudged toward, but didn't say explicitly there, was that in the recent attack on a synagogue on a Friday night, it was just last Friday night, uh, where seven people were killed and five were seriously injured by a gunman who was just firing at people when they were coming out of services. <clears throat> that was actually celebrated as uh, as we talked about uh, uh, earlier this week. There were uh, uh, honking of horns and people coming in the streets and applauding. And uh, one of the traditions they have is the uh, the idea that uh, this terrorist who died in the process was was able to kill seven people. That led people to give out candies because the death of uh, Jewish people seemed so sweet. That is not an attitude that is going to lend itself to successful negotiations or to the creation of a Palestinian state. And this is one of those areas where smart Palestinian spokespeople, and there are such uh, individuals, uh, will always acknowledge that the example of Israel is very relevant to the Palestinians. Why? Is because before Israel was recognized as an independent state, it was already functioning as one. They had built up the institutions and the democratic governance that later could be transferred easily into an independent state in 1948 in May. Uh, that's uh, a lesson that uh, bears repeating. Uh, speaking about other lessons, uh, one lesson from for Jennifer Lopez 
is uh, if you can mix romantic comedy with thriller action, well, maybe you get Shotgun Wedding. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Jennifer Lopez and her on-screen fiancé, Josh Duhamel, stage a lavish wedding on a Philippine island, but a gang of ruthless pirates take all their guests as hostages in a dangerous but comic blackmail scheme in Shotgun Wedding, now streaming on Prime Video. There were pirates, and they took everybody hostage. Here's the plan. We're going to head to the next island for help. This weekend hasn't exactly gone to plan. Pirates chasing you wasn't on your vision board. Her fans will be glad to see that Jennifer Lopez looks terrific and she can be a gifted comedian. But the plot is so preposterous that supporting roles for Lenny Kravitz, Jennifer Coolidge, Sonia Braga and Cheech Marin all get swallowed up in a tidal wave of violent and slapstick stupidity. Two stars for the R-rated and only occasionally adequate Shotgun Wedding. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, it's it's not a shotgun uh, wedding, but it, it may be a marriage of convenience, as they say. Uh, the uh, Republican Party is um, uh, talking about rebranding itself, at least many people in the party are, not as a party of business, not as a party of free enterprise, not as a party of the free market, but as a working class party, focusing on the needs and frustrations of American workers. Uh, this at a time, by the way, where union membership is dropped to an all-time low as a percentage of the uh, working class population. But uh, can the GOP, should the GOP, become a working class party? Tomorrow on the Medved Show, we're also talking about more states that are offering, or at least pondering uh, the offer of free universal lunch and uh, then the, the an amazing statistic that claims that though nine out of ten adults think they are financially responsible 35 percent of them still rely on parents to pay bills we'll talk about it all next time in this greatest nation on god's green earth hi fred dwyer